Cool. Good morning, everybody. Glad, glad you guys are here this morning. We are on our fifth and final week of a series that we've been doing here at Ignite called Skeptics Wanted. And throughout the series, we've been trying to address questions, objections, stumbling blocks, whatever that people have to the Christian faith. And so we've looked at all kinds of things. We've talked about science and Christianity. We've talked about the problem of suffering and evil in the world. We've looked at the Bible critically and, and talked, said, you know, can it kind of hold up to scrutiny? Uh, we've looked uh, at Christianity amongst other world religions, all kind of stuff. And today, Today, we are wrapping up the series by um, addressing different questions that, that you and others like you have asked over the last couple of months. We put some stuff out on Facebook. We put a survey out. People have submitted questions on uh, communication cards. I got emails from people not even in this city <laughs> from the, that said, hey, man, if you can answer this question, it would really help me out and that kind of thing. And so today, we're going to be taking our best shot. I've been, I've been uh, kind of promoing it as a stump the chump Sunday, <laughs> and so I would be the chump in that scenario. And so we're going to do our best to look at six different questions questions this morning and, uh, and address them. We'll, we, won't, we don't have time to go into all kinds of depth, but hopefully we can give you enough direction uh, that, that uh, can kind of remove that, that uh, roadblock for you. Couple of ground rules first. First of all, there's a ton of great questions that were submitted. Uh, we're going to look at today, and that were submitted. If the Bible speaks directly to it, we're just going to we're going to look at some verses. We'll we'll kind of call it like it is. Uh, nothing personal. We'll just kind of say kind of what God says. Try to represent Him well. If the Bible doesn't speak directly to something, we'll probably um, back off of it and look at some principles that can kind of help give us um, a snapshot of what that what, what it actually does say, and and uh, kind of point us in the right direction. And if, and sometimes there's stuff that it's just, we don't know. And so I'll try to be honest and say, I don't know. There's, there's a one place that I'll, I'll probably even just say, here's my opinion on the matter. And especially when it comes to my opinion, feel free to disagree, right? You could have a different opinion. That's totally fine. In fact, uh, even with the other stuff, wrestle through it, through it yourself. We'll, we'll look at what God says. And I think we've, we've done a decent job of saying, Hey, there's some, there's some reason to believe and some reason to have confidence in this book and in what he says. And so if, if you disagree with that, you might want to wrestle with God on that deal, um, but uh, we don't have to all necessarily agree on everything. We do have to be nice. We do have to love one another, so uh, are, are, are those fair ground rules? So we're going to take that kind of approach today, try to look at what God says, and, uh, and, uh, and try and love each other well. So with that, we're going to kind of jump in. Like I said, we're going to move. Some of these we're going to move pretty quickly on. Some of them will take a little bit more time on. Depends on the question. Uh, we've got them all over the spectrum. You guys have really challenged me today. <laughs> and so, uh, so with that, we'll, we'll jump in. First, uh, first question I want us to look at, first question that got asked this week is, are there such things as aliens or are we alone in the universe? Um right? <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> Good question. Uh, I read a National Geographic poll from 2012 that said that found that 77% of Americans believe that aliens have visited our world. 77%. I mean, three quarters of us, if that's an accurate poll. I read another poll, <laughs> I have to say, I wasn't going to share for this, but another one, it was from a real reputable source, maybe the New York Times or something, that, that found that uh, only about 40% of, uh, of Americans actually believe that um, alien intelligence exists out, you know, somewhere out there, which means that 37% of us believe that aliens have visited our world but don't believe in aliens. <laughs> so whatever that means, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, scratch your head on that one. But a, a significant portion. Uh, believe in that kind of stuff. Let me start out and say from a biblical perspective, let me, let me answer the question, are we alone in the universe by saying this? 
no, we're not alone in, in the universe. Listen to this. Now, before you start picturing little green men and UFOs, lis- listen to, to where we're going. I'm going to read from Ezekiel um, chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. And I, uh, I want you just to, to think about this and kind of picture this. He says this. He says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded a bril- by a brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And the fire was what looked like, in the fire, it was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Are you getting the image here in your mind? (laughs) Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of the other. Each one went straight ahead and did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of them had a face uh, of that of a human being on the right side, had the face of a lion on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face like an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching the other creatures on the other side, and each had two wings that covered their body. It's a symbol of uh, covering their unholiness before God. Each, Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. Without turning as they went, the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like lightning or like flashes of lightning. That pretty much clear it up for you. <laughs> now, this imagery is real similar to something that's described in the book of Revelation, actually, chapter 4. Living creatures that were encircling the throne of God, crying out. We just sang about it, in fact. Crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So these creatures are, we don't know. A lot of this could be imagery. We don't know exactly what it's saying. Like the whole, uh, some, some would say that the, the face of the human represents wisdom. The face of the lion represents courage. The fa- right? I mean, that kind of a thing. Um, even the wings covering their body symbolizes sort of an unholiness unhol- before a holy God kind of thing. We don't know exactly what it's saying. All I'm saying is there are creatures out there that are God-made, right, that don't exactly fall under the human category. These most likely we'd put in this category called cherubim in the, uh, in the Bible, angelic type creatures that God created and are used for his purposes. My only point in mentioning all this is that there are other creatures, other created beings in the universe. The Bible describes, describes creatures like this. He describes demons. It describes angels that exist uh, to, to bring God's will to bear in our world. These angels are sometimes described as invisible, like in 2 Kings 6, when Elijah prayed that his servant's eyes would be opened up so he could see the angel armies. Again, we sang about that earlier, that were surrounding him, that kind of thing. But sometimes these angels are visible. They appear in dazzling white and with blazing glory and most likely scare the bejeebers out of people, right? I mean, that's, that's the most common thing. When an angel appears, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid. Why do you think they say that? Because they're terrified, right? People are terrified when they see these kind of angels, these, these creatures that, that uh, appear before them. Some apparently can have the appearance of a normal human being. Hebrews 13.2 says that we can entertain angels and not be aware of it. So apparently it's possible for them to to blend in and be in our midst. Some angels have wings, it says in Isaiah 6.2, uh, uh, and can fly as is described in Daniel 9. 
Sometimes the Bible even describes things like chariots of fire that come down and rescue and swoop up retired prophets in the Old Testament, right? My only point is this. There is a ton to the supernatural world that exists. It's real. And sometimes the supernatural busts into our world in visible sort of ways. Things that, depending on your point of view, could be recognized as something divine or for those that are looking for more scientific, maybe even sci-fi explanations, could be interpreted as aliens from other worlds. Is that fair? Depends on your point of view. Now, does the Bible talk about life on other planets beyond angels and demons and cherubim and stuff like that? No, it doesn't. Is it possible? I'll scratch my head and say, oh, maybe. Is it possible? Yeah, but clearly what, what we do know is that God created everything that is. And so if there's something else that exists out there, it is created by God as well. And more than likely, I would say this is my own personal thought, my own personal uh, kind of bias on this. More than likely, the things that get spotted or reported or misunderstood as UFOs are either of man-made origin or perhaps from time to time, something of a more supernatural realm. It's my two cents worth on the topic. Fair enough? All right, let's go on. Question two, somebody asked this, I thought this was a great question. Somebody asked about, what about the other gospels, like the gospel of Thomas that claims that Jesus had children, did not die and rise again, and was a mortal man, was a, was a, a mortal man like, like you and me. Now, some of you might have heard a bit about this a few years ago in the movie The Da Vinci Code came out. There was a bit of hubbub in our culture and some talking and discussion and stuff that got written uh, about this, uh, that, that said basically that Jesus was just a normal guy and the whole thing about his divinity was just a big cover-up. Let me give you the background on this a little bit, this Gospel of Thomas. In 19, excuse me, in 1945 in Egypt, archaeologists uncovered a, a document that they dated around 340 years A.D., which became known as the Gospel of Thomas. It refers to Jesus kissing Mary Magdalene, and then it gets, it, the document is actually ripped, ripped at that point. So it cuts it off at that point. We don't know how, we don't know what it's saying, whatever, but some skeptics have sort of concluded that therefore Mary Magdalene and Jesus were actually married and had children and the church has been covering up. He's just a normal guy, didn't die, didn't rise again. The church has just been covering it up ever since. So the gospel of Thomas makes some comments and some claims, even has some heresy to it. Uh, but, but people have actually taken it a bunch further, even beyond what the actual document says. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this and, uh, for just a second and say, okay, so this gospel of Thomas, is it a real gospel? Is it something that, that really uh, presents a problem for Christianity? There's a doctor by the name of uh, Dr. Craig Evans, one of the leading scholars, well-respected in both the secular and, and Christian camps alike, dates the original document, as do many others, to AD 175 to 200. The original document, the original um, Gospel of Thomas, he said he would put somewhere around probably 150 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not just him. Lots of scholars would agree on the late date of the Gospel of Thomas. Here's the reason why. First, um, uh, the Gospel of Thomas quotes 14 or 15 other New Testament books, including the book of Revelation, which itself wasn't written until about 95 AD and wasn't readily available until uh, e even into the second century. Number two, Gospel of Thomas is never mentioned. It's never quoted. It's never referred to by any of the other 
early church fathers, unlike the other four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the other eyewitness accounts are all mentioned. There's all kinds, you can look at the writings of all kinds of other early church fathers that are quoting those gospels, and it, give it gives it some validity that, hey, this is real eyewitness testimony from the first century, that kind of stuff. The gospel of Thomas has none of that. It's never mentioned anywhere else. The third one, uh, this one is, uh, I'll, I'll grant you, a little bit weak on its own, but I do think it's, it, it's valid as well. Gospel of Thomas, just the, the whole, uh, it's, it's heresy, the heretical nature, and sort of the Gnostic-like overtones. There's a, there's a whole um, s- kind of vein of, called, of religion called Gnosticism, which kind of says salvation isn't really about uh, Jesus coming and saving us. It's, it's found within, right? We can kind of save ourselves. We can kind of become like God ourselves. It's known as Gnosticism that's, that's referred to over and over in the, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas. Anyway, it drastically disagrees with all of the other historically reliable writers of the New Testament, all the other early church fathers. It varies greatly on the nature of God, on the nature of salvation, even the value of women and all kinds of other things. It's just completely out of place and therefore it kind of raises some questions like, well, if everything else, you know, all the other writings of the early church fathers, all the other writings of the disciples, of the apostles, if they're all writing something over here and there's one that's sticking out over here that seems different, it kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder like, is that really, is that really a, a, a fair thing? Is that really uh, from the disciple Thomas? And the fourth one, this one kind of puts the last nail in the coffin from my perspective. But the Gospel of Thomas quotes and refers to uh, a document. It's called the Diatessaron. It's a summary, uh, a Syrian summary of the four Gospels. It was the first Gospel that they had that went to Syria with sort of a conglomerations of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They put something together that was sort of a, uh, you know, they, kind of a compilation of all of those things. It changed some of the language. It changed some of the lessons, some of the wording. And actually, the Gospel, the gospel of Thomas actually quotes this diatessaron. Now, the thing that's interesting about that, the diatessaron wasn't, wasn't written until 175 AD. What does that tell you about when the Gospel of Thomas was written? Okay, that was pretty weak. After that, After that right? After 175 AD. Friends, listen to this. The Gospel of Thomas, it, it wasn't written by the disciple Thomas. It couldn't have been. It wasn't even written within a hundred years of Jesus' time on earth. It, it's not an eyewitness account of Jesus' teaching. It's not an eyewitness account of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. It doesn't line up with the historically reliable first century eyewitness accounts. And quite frankly, the Gospel of Thomas itself is just unreliable and untrue. It's not a cover-up. There's just no evidence that suggests that anything about it is really reliable or true. Fair enough? I'm not trying to be completely unbiased, but I'm just saying that the historical evidence just doesn't line up. And so it's something you might see from time to time referred to on the History Channel. If, you, if, you, if any of you ever flip through, they'll, they'll talk about all kinds of things. They might, they might uh, have Bible scholars or something like that, quote, quote, that they'll talk about this. But you can just know. It just, the history isn't there to, to back it up. So there we go. Uh, question two. Question three. Uh, it's a follow-up from last week. If, uh, if God didn't create evil, then who created the devil slash the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Where, where does that all come from? Follow-up from last week. Again, great question. Uh, in all fairness, we don't know a ton about the origin of Satan. Mostly we know about his nature. We know what his destruction will be like in pretty great detail. But most of what we know about his origins are mentioned somewhat parenthetically. 
leave us with a bit of mystery around this whole, this whole idea. The short answer is that did God create Satan? The answer is yes, he created Satan. He, he was an angel in heaven. He was created good like the rest of creation. And somewhere in eternity past, he too rebelled against God and was ousted from heaven. Here's a, here's a few of the verses that, that give us some snapshots of this. Jude 6 says this. I don't know that I've I don't know that I often refer to Jude, but here you go. One chapter along uh, book of the Bible, right before Revelation, says this. And the, angel who, the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. He's talking to, he's talking about Satan and those that re- angels that rebelled against God and uh, were bo- booted out. First Timothy 3, 6, this is actually talking about something completely different. Like I said, it's a parenthetical thought, but this is talking about qualifications for leaders in the church. And he's, he, they're, they're saying this, he or, you know, the person that the potential leader must not be a recent convert. And then it says this, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Right, so uh, gives us a little snapshot into this. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says, "For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light; he pretends to be an angel of light, but is in fact an angel of darkness." Revelation twelve nine gives us this picture: the great dragon was hurled down from heaven, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Okay, so here's, here's about what we know, right? Satan was created as an angel, created to do God's will, but pride came into the picture. He rebelled against God, was hurled out of God's presence along with all the other angels who followed his lead and will one day face judgment for his rebellion and be put away and will be no more on this world. Did God create him? Short answer, yes. Did God create him evil? The answer is no, right? He created him good. But like man, he was created with a degree of free will. And he too, like humankind, rebelled against God and therefore brought sin and evil into the world. Question three, let's go on to the next one. Fourth one, now we're getting to some real toughies, right? How could a loving God allow people to suffer for eternity in hell was one of the questions. Now, I, I have to say, again, good question. Impossible to fully answer, right? This is, this is one of those questions uh, that sometimes, I mean, you can think your way through and at some point you scratch your head and you're like, I don't know. I don't know the full answer of all this. There are some things that we can know, and there are some things we do know about this that, so we can address. Is this, by the way, is this question, you ever thought this question or ever heard this question from anybody around you? How could a, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? Right, that's, that's one of the most common things that I think we hear these days. Worth some time. We'll spend a little bit of time on it. We could approach this and address this. This, this question alone could be a series, okay? This question alone could be at least an entire message, if not two or three or four. And so there's no way I can do it justice. I'm going to hit three things uh, to just to kind of push our thinking a little bit. Uh, I, I think we'll shed some light on the subject. First thing I want to just mention is this. God's desire is for people to end up in heaven. God desires that. Listen to this. First Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Again, a parenthetical thought, but listen to it. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants how many people, by the way, to be saved? All, he says. He, our God wants all all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth that there's one God and one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. 
Ezekiel 18, 23 says this. This is God speaking. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? By the way, it's a, uh, it's a hypothetical question. What's, what's the implied answer here? No, he declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live? The answer is yes, of course I'm pleased. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants us to live. He wants us to turn to him and find forgiveness and freedom and life. That's why Jesus came and died in the first place, so that you and I could be reunited to God, so that we wouldn't have to experience hell, but could come and instead find hope and new life and a eternity with him in heaven, right? That's, what, that's part of why he came. Luke 19, 10, this is Jesus speaking. He's, he puts it like this. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's the first, so that's the first point, right? God's desire is for people to end up in heaven. That's his, it's his heart. It's his desire. Second thing, God has shown us his love through Christ and he has made heaven available to everybody who would receive it through faith in Christ. John 3, 16 and 17 is one of the most common, commonly referred to verses in all of the Bible. Uh, still today, sometimes at football games, you'll see the guy holding the sign, John 3, 16, and everybody around him is going like, who's John and why are you putting this? Right, but but they, they're putting it up kind of a reminder. It says this, it says, for God so loved the world. Who's the world, by the way? everybody right for God so loved the world in its entirety all the people that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him God has done everything possible including sending his own son to die for our sin and for our rebellion. He's done everything possible to open up a way for the world to end up in heaven if they would just turn to him in faith, if they would just open up their hearts and lives, turn towards him and say, I need you, would you come and save me? He's done everything possible. Third thing, and this one's gonna be tougher. I'll just say that now. The third, the third thing there, God doesn't send people to hell they send themselves there. We send ourselves there. Listen to this, that John three sixteen passage. If you go on, the next two verses says this. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes and puts their faith in Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. <clears throat> Listen to this, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. People loved darkness, were drawn to darkness instead of the light. Romans 1, 20 through 26, and you could kind of keep going to 28 if you wanted, says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his nature, his eternal power, his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Listen to this. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. It goes on. He, he gave them over to their evil desires even. 
Now, I'm not sure if you're kind of tracking with me here or not, but these two scriptures sort of paint a picture of men loving their own way, of men and women loving the darkness rather than the light, rather than God. They've turned away from God again and again and again and again by their sin, by their actions, sometimes by their words of like, God, I don't want your ways. I'm going my own way. I'm going to have my own way. God, I don't want you in my life. With our words, with our actions, with our deeds, with our hearts, we have said those kinds of things and acted those ways again and again and again. We have rebelled from God despite the fact that he has died for us, that he has showed us his love through Christ, despite the fact that he's constantly trying to woo us back, despite the opportunity he gives us to enter in and find life with him forever, free of charge through faith alone in Christ at some point along the way, when we, when we have done that again and again and again, we've turned away, we've turned our backs, we've pushed him away, we've gone our own way again and again. At some point, I mean, Romans is painting a picture where God says, okay, right? Ha- have it your way, right? I mean, uh, he, he's wooed us, he's sent his son, but, but if we continually turn away again and again and again and again, God is not going to force himself on us. At some point, God steps back and says, okay, have it, have it your way. I heard a quote once, but by the way, that's our choice, right? I heard a quote once that put it this way. There's only two types of people in the world. There are those that in this life bow their knee to Jesus, open up their hearts and lives and say, may, Lord, may your will be done. And there are those who throughout their life, through words and actions, again and again and again and again have said, no, 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 no to God. And there are the, the second group are those that at the end of their lives, God finally steps back and says, okay, may your will be done. See the picture? There are those that in this life say, God, may your will be done. Or there are those that reject him again and again. And he says, okay, have that, that's your choice, right? That is your choice. May your will be done. Now, is this easy for us to understand? No, I mean, not, not necessarily, right? <clears throat> but, but friends, this, this we know for sure. Hell is a real place. A lot of, a lot of us as Americans have, have sort of chosen to ignore that part of the Bible, right? We've kind of we've torn that part out of, out of the Bible, so to speak. But, but the Bible talks about it. Jesus talks about it over and over and over again, hundreds of times in the pages of Scripture, uh, the Bible talks about hell. It's a real place. Over and over again, God, Jesus, again and again says, man, he's, he warns us and says, man, you do not want to go there. It's a very real place. You don't want anybody you've ever met. You don't want anybody you've ever locked eyes with to end up there. He has freely offered us something better. And he warns us again and again, don't go there. All you need to do in this life is turn towards Christ. Open up your heart and say, I need you, Jesus. Come and forgive me. Come and wash me. Come and lead me. I'm yours. One of the words, there's three different, actually, words uh, in the Bible that get translated to the English word hell. Uh, One of them is a picture of a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they, you know, you take all the old, food and garbage and junk and just leave it and it rots it was nasty it was smelly it was horrible kind of place and again jesus point in 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 using these words is you don't want to go there it's nasty right it's nasty it's terrible 
Can I lighten it up for one second? It reminds me of a story uh, that I heard uh, one time about a guy that actually dies, ends up going to hell, and the head demon shows up and says, okay, here's the deal. You, uh, <coughs> you have to, ch- you're going to get a choice. You're going to get to choose one of three rooms that you're going to spend all eternity in. But you have to choose, and after that, there's no change in your mind. You're locked in. And so the guy's like, oh, man. He's like, okay. So they go to the first room, and they open up the door, and like the, the word picture that I just share with you, it's like a garbage dump. There's rats, there's disease, it smells horrible, there's just decay, and it's nasty. And he's like, yuck. He's like, there's no way I'm choosing that. He's like, can we see what's in, you know, door number two? <laughs> and he said, yeah. So they, they go on, they open up the second door, and it's just, <laughs> excuse my language, hotter than, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's, it's really hot, we'll just say there. But it's super hot. The, the, the people that are in there have like these, pickaxes they're like busting stones it's like a thousand degrees and they're they're working and it's it just looks grueling and again just so hot and he's like no i don't think so i'm not i don't think i'm up for that and so he says can we see what's behind door number three and they say yeah so he goes over opens up the third door walks in and the room is uh, about knee deep in uh um how can I say, in, uh, in sewage, we'll call it, okay? But just as knee-high of crap, right? Just nasty. It smells terrible, but the guys are sitting around drinking coffee, and the people that are in there are sitting there drinking coffee and talking to one another. And he's like, well, I mean, if I have to choose one of the three, at least you can kind of get some coffee and kind of get to talk with some other people. It smells pretty nasty, but, you know, maybe, maybe that's okay. And uh, he says, so I, I, <coughs> he says, I, I choose this one. And so the guy, uh, the, the head demon closes the door and leaves. And the guy that's in charge in that room, just about the time the door closes, said, okay, guys, coffee breaks over. Everybody back on your heads. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, sorry. It's my, it's my one hell joke. <laughs> but, <coughs> I mean, we can, I, I kind of throw a joke in just to kind of lighten it up a little bit. It's a pretty intense subject. But the truth of the matter is, from a biblical perspective, hell is no laughing matter is it I mean hell is one of those things that we don't like to talk about we don't like to think about but it's a real place according to scripture it's it's something that 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 Christ has done everything he can do I mean God died for you he took your place so that you didn't have to go there so that you could one day end up in heaven so that you could one day end up in a different place Everything in the, in the pages of God's book, everything about Christ's life, death, and resurrection is pointing ahead saying, man, you don't want to go there. You want to turn to Christ now, open up your hands to him and say, may your will be done so that you can experience life here, today, tomorrow, and forever. Fair enough? Question four? Question five. All right, this kind of dovetails with that. Is purgatory a real place? Had several questions about purgatory, a bunch of different things about it. So let's talk about purgatory for just a second. A lot of our Catholic friends believe that there's a place called purgatory where the soul goes after one dies to be purged or to be cleansed from the effects of sin and to be prepared for heaven. The Catholic Encyclopedia defines purgatory as a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults and have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions or due to their sins. Catholics are are therefore encouraged to pray or to sometimes even do good works on behalf of the dead that are in purgatory to try and help them get out of purgatory and into heaven quicker. Now, to be honest, uh, the Bible never mentions the word purgatory anywhere. 
It's never mentioned even once, never hinted at or described in any way. It's, it, it wasn't even proposed by the Catholic Church until 593 AD. That was the first time we have written mention in the Catholic Church, and it wasn't adopted as an official belief of the Catholic Church until 1459 AD. The Bible doesn't mention it. The belief uh, really, to be honest, doesn't really come from Scripture. Here's some things that we do know uh, that, that I would say uh, sort of go against the whole idea of purgatory in any way. Listen to this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature had not yet been cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave, what does that say? He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record uh, of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Christ forgave and conquered all of our sin through his work on the cross. If you're in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in him, then you are forgiven. 1 John 2, 2 says this, he, Jesus, is the atoning or the cleansing sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world, for anyone who would put their faith in him. Jesus has already cleansed us, friends. He's already forgiven us completely for our sins if we put our trust in him. Jesus said this to the criminal on the cross who cried out for Jesus to have mercy on him at the last minute. Jesus says this, he says, truly I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now again, what do we know about this guy that cried out for that? He was a criminal, right? He was, he was being rightly executed for his crimes. That's about what we know. If ever there was somebody that would warrant purgatory for cleansing, you would think it would be him, right? But not according to Jesus. It is through faith in Christ that we are cleansed and forgiven completely. And so he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. Listen to that. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by works. It's not by your works. It's not by someone else's works on your behalf other than Christ and Christ alone, right? That's what it all comes back to. We cannot and are not forgiven or cleansed by anybody's good works, but by Christ alone. According to Jesus and God's book, quite frankly, there's just no purgatory. There's heaven or hell. The decisions we make in this life will decide where we spend eternity, right? So let's kind of go on from there. I've got one more question I'll answer, and kind of we'll do some wrap-up for all this. So I had a question about, well, what about all the different denominations? I mean, there's Catholics, there's Baptists, there's Methodists, there's Presbyterians, there's all kinds of things. Will all denominations end up going to heaven? What's the deal on this, this whole denominations thing? And I think it's a great question. My answer, and, and I think the Bible's answer on this deal is two, right? It's yep and nope. Will all denominations, uh, will all denominations end up in heaven? No. I mean, Yes, there will be some probably from all of it, but no, just because you're in church doesn't mean you're going to end up in heaven, right? That's not the deal. There will be Catholics or Lutherans or Baptists or whatever, Methodists or whatever, people from Ignite, that people that will end up in heaven and people that perhaps won't. Because if they are basing their decision, if the, if, if the reason that you think that you're ended up in heaven is because of your religion, because you go to church, because you threw some money in the offering plate, because you belong to or have the right doctrine from this church or that church or the other church, if that's where you're putting your hope, then according to the Bible, 
you have some things to worry about. Listen to this, Jesus' own words, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He's talking about the end. And he says, you know, at, at, at the end, when people stand before him, he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Can I get a gulp in the room? Ooh. Right? Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I do good religious things? Didn't I go to Ignite? Didn't I help with the poor sometimes? Jesus says, man, you can even look religious. You can be religious. But if you're not putting your faith in Christ to save you, you'll not end up in heaven. If you're wondering what it is that you're putting your faith or your trust in, you can tell by what you do. That's what that whole passage is talking about. You can see what you really are putting your faith in. You can see what you're really trusting by how you live your life. It will leak out. He says it's like a tree. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He says by their fruit, you'll recognize where you're putting your hope, where you're putting your trust Kind of the theme of today has to do with this whole issue of salvation, of ending up in heaven. And so let's wrap up by summarizing what the Bible teaches on this kind of stuff. Because on this topic, the Bible is crystal clear. There is no ambiguity. There is no confusion whatsoever. And so let's talk about it right now. Let me, let me, I'm just going to walk through some verses. <clears throat> Romans 3.23 puts it this way. It says, for all. What's that word? For all. Does that mean some? For what do, you, what do you think all means in the original language? All, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, uh, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Right? Oops, do we go ahead one? Yeah, go, go back one if you would. There we go. For the wages of sin is death. I got three scriptures on there. The wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities, which is kind of a fancy word for sins, your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden the face or his face from you so that he will not hear you. Friends, if we all, the, the Bible's real clear on this. If we all got what we deserved, what would we get? Would we get heaven? Do you and I deserve heaven? No, according to the Bible. And I think our experience would tell us this too. Uh, have we rebelled against God? Have we sinned against God? Ever turned away from his voice? Ever know that you should have done something but didn't do it? Yeah, that's all of us, isn't it? All have sinned. Uh, Isaiah says it this way. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've gone our own path. We've walked away from God again and again and again. And according to the Bible, the, the penalty for treason against God, the penalty for sinning against God is to be ousted from his presence the same way that Satan was, the same way that Adam and Eve were. They were kicked out of the garden, right? Their separation, death comes into the world. And inevitably, when that's full-blown, it leads to death, leads to hell, leads to total separation from God if it's fully developed. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has put us on the path towards hell. Our sin leads to death. Death leads to hell. Right? I mean, that's the reality that the Bible puts us, puts us in. And, and believe it or not, there's good news coming. You with me? Let's go ahead to the next, next verses. 
But listen to this. It doesn't just stop with the wages of sin is death because the second half of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we were stuck in our sin, while we were on our, the path towards hell. He says, here's the good news. Christ came and died for us to bring us back to God. This is amazing. This is what, the, this is what Christians call the good news because although our deeds have warranted hell, our, our deeds warrant death and separation from God, that was not good enough for God. He loved us too much to watch humanity be lost, and so he sent his son, part of God himself, to pay for our sins by dying in our place as our substitution on the cross and was raised again and instead now offers life and forgiveness and heaven and unconditional love and a spot in his family, eternal life to you and to me. He offers it free of charge for those of us that would just turn to him and receive it by faith. Romans 10, 9 and 11 says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, means the leader, means is in charge of all, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes, anyone who puts their trust or faith in him will never be put to shame. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 references again, says, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith in Christ. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Friends, the happily ever after, that life to the full, that forgiveness and love that we need more than anything else, it's all available to you and to me free of charge, to anybody on the planet if they'll come and simply receive it from Christ. If you'll come and say, Jesus, I need you, would you come and would you forgive me for my sins? Would you come and pay the penalty that I deserve? Would you take away my sins and make me clean? Would you take away the death and the hell that I deserve? Would you come and be my God and lead me from this point forward, friends? For those of us that put our faith and trust in Christ like that, we are forgiven, period. That's it. That's game. That's match, right? We're, we're assured heaven is waiting for you. We are told that the Holy Spirit will come, God himself will come and take up residence in our life and begin to transform us and make us new and bring new life about in our hearts, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. It all comes down to this, but there is a decision that needs to get made, right? There's a decision that has to happen for each one of us on the planet, and it's what are you going to do with Jesus, right? How are you going to try and get to heaven? Are you going to try and earn it on your own merit? You know what? Can never be good enough, right? It's that Ephesians 2. We can never work hard enough, be good enough. It doesn't matter if you're a little bit better than those people around you, right? You've still sinned against God. You've committed treason. Our only hope is that Christ has come. He has paid for our sin, our rebellion by dying on the cross in our place. He was raised again. Our only hope is that he comes to us and he says, man, if you will, I died for you, I love you. If you'll just open up your heart, open up your life, turn towards me and cry out, I need you and I'm trusting in what you've done for me, you will be forgiven. You are a part of my family, Jesus says. You will end up in heaven. For the last five weeks, we've been trying to remove roadblocks 
in your relationship with God. We've been trying to answer questions and go after the biggies. I know that you have more questions. I know, uh, you know that there's all kinds of stuff probably still spinning around your minds and hearts. But, but if you'll remember back to, to week one, here was the deal we made. I, I said there's no way possible that I could ever answer all your questions. There's no way. But, but, but the question, what we were saying is, but is there evidence enough that a reasonable person, that an open-hearted person can look and have courage and confidence to trust that Jesus is who he said he is, that this book is true, that we've been created by God and for God, and that Jesus stands alone from every other person and every other religious leader on the planet. Is it possible that there's, have we, have we shown, have we seen evidence enough that it's time to make a decision, evidence enough that we can open up our hearts and lives and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm in. I want to follow you. I want to know you. I need the forgiveness you died to give me. I am in. If you have never made that decision before, I'll tell you what, friends, today's your day. Why wait? Is there, has there been evidence enough that you're ready to take that step? If so, I would encourage you, open up your heart and life to him today. We'll pray in just a second. You can do that. If, you, if you're here and you still have some significant roadblocks, and I'm not talking about smoke screens. Sometimes we'll throw up things because we don't really want to wrestle with Jesus. We don't really want to, we don't want to really have to get right with him. But if, you, if there's legitimate objections and obstacles standing anywhere, let's go after them. I would love, I love coffee. I was telling the, the newcomers group this last week, I love coffee, love to buy you a cup of coffee. Let's sit down and talk about it. I can point you in the direction of some resources, some books. Let's, let's talk it out and pray it out and wrestle through those questions together. That's, fan, that's fine, let's, let's do it, let's go after it. Don't just stand idle, but really pursue it. And then my, my uh, heart and desire, we talked about Thomas the first week of the series. He's, talked to, he's known as Doubting Thomas, right? who said, man, unless I see Jesus for myself, I will not believe. And so Jesus appears to him and says, Thomas, come here. I want to show you, right? Come here. Check out the nail holes in my wrists. Reach your hand into my side. And then he says this. He says, stop doubting and believe. I wonder for some of us, it's time that we've seen enough. And today is the day where you just need to stop down or you just need to step past and say, I still have questions, I still have whatever, but God, I'm opening up my heart and my life to you. I am yours. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, that's our, our cry this morning. Lord, I thank you that you give us reason to believe, that you give us confidence in who you are, that you've shown yourself, you've proven yourself to us again and again and again, God. And for those of us that are ready this morning, we just want to open up our hearts, our lives to you and just say, Jesus, we're in. We want to, we need the forgiveness that you died to offer us. We want to be assured of that spot in heaven with you one day. We want to know your life and your presence in the here and now. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come and fill us. Come and lead our lives. Come and be our God. Come and save us and rescue us from our sin. Make us new and bring us home, God. We need you, Jesus. God, for those of us that still have questions, I pray that you would be revealing yourself to them even today, even in this moment, that you would speak, that you would minister, that you would reveal uh, the answers to whatever questions they're still wrestling with and that you would quickly bring them home as well. God, we love you. We need you. And we just offer ourselves to you afresh this morning. Come and pour out your grace.
come and pour out your presence on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.